Hey friends, you're listening to the teaching podcast from Crossridge Women. The audio you're about to hear is from our winter 2022 study in the book of James. We are so happy to have you study along. So let's get started. Sorry, I had some technical difficulties, but now we are good to go. Welcome to our Zoom friends and uh, our groups. We're back at it. Okay, Um, so let's just sort of sum up where we've been and then where we're going to go here because we're going to talk a little bit about Chapter 4 and then uh, where we're going to go in our last chapter of James chapter 5. So uh, James has been teaching his flock all about genuine faith. And in doing so, he's diagnosed a lot of these problems that tend to derail our discipleship and tend to, and tend to de- derail our, our relationship with Jesus and us growing more into uh, the image of God and the image of Christ. Um, and so first he said, way back in the beginning of the book, he said that our problem is that we lack wisdom. And specifically, he said, we don't see clearly with God's perspective, okay? Um, and that we don't see him as this, the generous giver and the gift itself. Then he said that uh, our problem is that we don't see other people clearly either, or at least uh, we don't see them with God's perspective, which, when it comes to image bearers, is the perspective that, is, that matters, right? The, the ultimate perspective uh, that counts. And next, James told us that this problem comes out in how we speak. It always comes out. And I was thinking about, isn't this interesting? Why in this book about wisdom does James talk so much about speaking? And I think it's because this is how we manifest our wisdom, or this is how wisdom or lack of is manifested, really. Do you know that, I mean, I think when I was a kid, I had it on a Garfield poster or something, (laughs) but it says, you know, what, do you know the old adage that I'm thinking, like, better to keep your mouth shut and remain thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. (laughs) And basically, it's kind of a summary of, like, that, that's, this is why James is, talks about there's wisdom and when you talk about wisdom you gotta talk about speech because that is how it comes out so james said you know this this way we speak it's dangerous and it's divisive and it's out of control and then in chapter four here we are not surprised that james reveals that these problems and this problem the tongue and others come from something deep inside us it's not just about our tongue it's actually connected to a deeper place in us Um, And it's this issue that we all struggle with that is at the heart of all sin, and that's pride. So what is the remedy then, James? Come on. Like, we've heard all about all these problems, and we're with you, okay? Like, it's hard to stomach sometimes. It's hard to look in the mirror. Sometimes we'd like to just walk away and forget that that's what we look like. But even if we're willing to say, okay, James, we can see that we do have these problems. This is derailing our discipleship to Jesus. Uh, Please give us a remedy. What's the remedy? So this is where we get it Uh, in chapter 4. I think James begins. And people say it's the clearest gospel statement in the book of James, other than Martin Luther, of course. um, And it's this verse 6. 
he said, it says, he gives greater grace. And I told you that James was going to give the whole gospel in very brief summary. And I think that is it. So let's talk about grace for a minute, because actually you could sum up and say, what is the gospel? The gospel is grace. Um, but grace is also one of those words that we hear so much maybe, and we talk about around the church that we can be sort of like, grace, well, you know, it's, I think I always do the same thing. You know, it's like, it's grace, it's grace. Like, I don't know if you say it with a smile or something. Does that convince people? You know what it is. But um, yeah, what is grace? It's, this is a term used throughout the Bible, and it's closely tied to the truth of the gospel. Anybody look up any definitions here in person? Do you have any good ideas? Like if someone said, what's grace? What do you say? Undeserved favor. Yeah, unmerited favor. What, are we all good evangelicals or what? That just rolled right off your tongue. Yeah, unmerited favor. Anybody else? I got one I really like, but hold on. Okay, we're holding. <laughs> oh, a divinely given talent or blessing. Yeah, nice. A divinely given talent or blessing. Yeah, gracious gift. Gracious gift is what, um, yeah, the word means. Um, but it is, it is a Greek word. You probably know. You maybe know someone named this. Charis, right, is the word um, in Greek for grace. And it actually, part of its meaning says to lean towards, to share a benefit or gift. To lean towards, to share a benefit or a gift. So it's giving favor like we said, especially when the recipient does not deserve it. And to do that requires, guess what? A very generous spirit, which we learned in James 1, God has. He's a generous giver. So I think it's really interesting that James makes sure that he reminds the people that God is a generous giver. Um, because it, it's tied directly to grace. I think grace means that God has drawn near. He has leaned towards us with a gift. And we can see, if you think through the Gospels, the gift is himself, right? He delights to draw near and give this gift of himself. Ephesians 1, chapter 6, you can look it up later, but my par paraphrase is basically it says, Jesus is God's glorious grace to us in human form. Right? He leaned towards us. He came near to earth with a gift of his own presence. And so that's why I like to say sometimes we think like, oh, it's a gift. You know, grace is a gift. I think grace is more about presence than it is about a present. You like it? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure I didn't think of it. But it's the declaration of the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's why we, we tie that word so often to the gospel. So let's, let me just walk it through really simply because I've been trying to sort of tell, remind myself what is the gospel exactly because even that word I can just, you know, sort of not think about too much. So Jesus draws near to humanity. That's what his life on earth was. To enable us to once again draw near to God. That's what he did through his death and resurrection. We say that, that when he died, he healed our relationship so that we once again can be friends with God, reconciled to God. As we draw near, he, oh, sorry. As we draw near, he draws near to us, as James says. And then what does he do? He gives more grace through the gift of the Holy Spirit, okay? 
Um, so I was thinking how, how this was a really neat sort of contrasting parallel to the sin cycle in chapter one, how sin desires give birth to sin, sin gives birth to death. And here what James is saying is um, the Holy Spirit causes us to draw near to God. And when we do that, God draws near to us. And what does he do? He gives greater grace, so more of his Holy Spirit, which causes us to want to draw near to him, which causes him to draw near to us, and so on and so on. It's beautiful. Augustine actually says about grace that God gives what he demands. He gives a sense of his presence, his self, closeness, communion through Jesus Christ, because that's what he demands, us to be in covenant and friendship with him and loving him single-mindedly, right? Like we've been talking about, not double-mindedly. Um, so the more we seek to live according to God's wisdom, as James has been spelling out, so the closer we grow to his purity and holiness, and as we align our heart, I think, like with the heart of Jesus, we draw near to him, we begin to see the world through his eyes and, and actually through his humility, we could probably say. Um, but let's talk specifically about what this drawing near to God looks like, because I think James gets kind of specific about what it looks like to draw near to God. What are some of the, the verbs or the action words that he uses when he talks about drawing near to God? Submission. Yep, submit. Resist. Resist. Draw near. Draw near. Cleanse. Cleanse. Purify. Be wretched. Humble. Be wretched. Mourn. Weep. Yeah, good. Okay, so let's start at the beginning of that list. Submit yourselves to God. So that word submission, ooh, nobody wants to talk about it, right? So to submit means to put yourself lower, right? To put yourself under, to lower yourself. This is the, the response that God's grace demands. And actually, if you truly see God for who he is, this is what you do. In, in the whole Old Testament, like when people saw God, think about Isaiah, like when they actually see God, they can't help but what? Like, woe is me. Like, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. There's this feeling like, I got to get down. I got to lower myself. It's natural. Um, but this is sort of like when you see Jesus as the ultimate reality, okay, he is the king. He is everything. He's everything he says he is. The natural response is to put yourself lower. But this can't work for if we're living as like what I told my kids is called secret sauce Christians, right? Where it's like, Jesus is my secret sauce. You just add a little dash of, when, it, when it's convenient, right? Add them to your, no, this is just like, this is, this is the soil that we live in. This is, um, we, li we see everything in relationship to him because he's the ultimate reality. Um, but let's talk about resisting the devil. So that word resist means to stand against. The apostles talked about this enemy of God who uh, was a liar. They talk about him as being a liar. They are, he is the father of lies. So his main weaponry um, in, involves lies. Um, so he is against God in that because God is truth. So you have to sort of decide for yourself, I think, what does it mean to stand against the devil? Like, lots of people actually have opinions about this. You might hear people talk about, like, 
things you have to yell out into space or like into the air, like against the devil, you have to speak out against him. Or I hear, hear, hear people talk about like when you get out of bed in the morning, you got to like stomp on his head. You know, there's a lot of people have ideas like how do I resist the devil? So it's good for you to think about what that means. Um, and I actually just wanted to share with you something that I saw this week. I was reading in Revelation chapter 1. And John, John writes this, and I thought it was sort of interesting, and it led me to some application that I thought, oh, this is what James was talking about. Um, so he says this, ch- uh, chapter 1, verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the affliction, kingdom and endurance that are in Jesus. That's a whole other, we could have a conversation for 30 minutes on that, how that connects to James. But anyway, I, John, your brother and partner in the affliction, the kingdom and the endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos. So you probably know that. So he's in prison because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So what put John in prison? The testimony of Jesus. Okay, so God's te- John's testimony about who Jesus was opposed the worldly system of Rome. And he went to jail for it because it opposed Rome's lies that Caesar was king. He was saying Jesus is the true king. And he went to prison because of it. So whatever you think, whatever we all think it means to resist the devil, I think John believed a part of it. Or you could say to John, he's like, well, yeah that it's about testifying to Jesus as ultimate reality. It's like truth to the lies of the world and the enemy of God. Um, And so I guess where this got applicative for me is I was thinking about what are the spiritual rhythms and routines that the church engages in to like combat lies. And obviously scripture, we talked about that last a little bit last week, but I, I was thinking about, um, sometimes I like to call it narrative style, but we also call it just giving testimony, right? To actually give testimony of how God has been working and how you've seen that he is alive and, and he is, he's caring for you, he's answering prayers, he is, he is working in, in the world or in your life or in the lives of the people that you know. This weekend we're going to have baptisms in between the services. That's giving testimony. That is people standing there resisting the devil. That is what we are doing. We are standing against the devil. We are resisting his lies and saying, no, Jesus is the ultimate reality. There is life after death. And this world is not the end. There is something more. That's what we're doing there, right? Um, I, I had a, an acquaintance who I hadn't seen for a long time because of COVID. And then our son started playing volleyball again together. And when I saw her, I walked into the gym and I looked at her. And she, you could tell she was just growing her hair back. She was very... Um, thin. And so I thought, okay, something happened here. So I, I saw her and I said, oh, how are you? I haven't seen you for such a long time. And I just, I, I felt like I had to say something. So I said, you know, I can tell you've been through something and I'm so sorry I didn't know about it. And the first words out of her mouth was, well, yes, I'm here because Jesus does miracles today. <laughs> and then she proceeded to tell me how she went from like the doctors told her one day, yeah, you have stage four breast cancer, or brain cancer. You are like this tumor in your head is like there's nothing we can do. And here she was nine months later, and the doctors were saying, this scan is impossible, but there's absolutely no cancer there, right? And so her narrative style was to say, Jesus still does miracles, and I am living proof of that. 
And it's just like ever since then, I always think about her and I think like, you know what? I can talk about normal things like this too. Like, oh, your husband finally came home. Yes. You know what? Jesus gave me the strength to get through 12 days uh, on my own. And sometimes I thought I wasn't going to do it, but he provided people to bring me food and he encouraged me through his body and he actually sustained me by his word and through prayer. And like, you know, I can, we can talk about normal things and give testimony to Jesus. I think we should sort of make it normal. We should normalize it. The second thing I think when it comes to lies is I think it's really important, especially in our day and age, every once in a while, maybe once a year, maybe twice a year to do sort of an inventory of voices to think about like who, what are the voices that I'm listening to regularly in my life. So make a list. Like here's the shows I always watch. Here's the news that I'm listening to. This is the podcast. These are the books that I'm reading. Like what are the voices that are speaking into your life and shaping you? And then go down each one of them and say like, are these pointing me to Jesus or away from Jesus? What are the feelings that they evoke in me? Are they making me a more peaceful person when I engage with them? Am I seeing meekness come out of it? Or am I seeing jealousy or envy? Do they get my blood boiling? Do I feel angry? Uh, I think it's good to evaluate the voices. And um, we can't always change what we can't control, but there are things like something like that, we can. We cannot change the fact that our world is going to continue to throw lies at us and our children and everyone in our, like, it, it will not stop, right? Satan will not stop until the day that we know that the Bible has predicted that, it, that he is completely wiped out by Jesus the King. And so until then, though, he is going to fight hard. And so we cannot stop that from happening, but we can choose not to listen. So I think it's just good to think about that because sometimes we slip into that. We don't even realize all what we've been taking in. Okay, uh, finally, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, be miserable, mourn, and weep. What does this language remind you of? The sacrificial system, repentance, right? Ceremonial cleansing for moral purity. That's what the people should have thought about, right? Lament and real embodied sorrow over our sin, right? That's the gospel. How do we draw near to God? We always start with repentance. How many times have we said, okay, we see this is true about God. What does this mean? How do we, how do we apply it? How do we respond? The answer is always repentance. <laughs> it is. It always starts with that. Yeah. But it's not just ritual outer cleansing. He says, purify your hearts. Don't just wash your hands, right? Purify your hearts against double-mindedness. We want pure hearts, single-minded hearts that love the Lord our God with all our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength, choosing him and rejecting other less, lesser loves. And that's what God actually desires, isn't it? Psalm 51, a broken spirit and a contrite heart. And uh, there's a word to sum up, actually, I think, all of this. And he uses it at the end it's sort of an inclusio or a repetition from this. At the beginning, he says, submit, put yourself under. And then at the end, he says it again. He says, humble yourself, which means the same thing. Put yourself low. Get low. Make yourself low. Um, in essence, it's the, the phrase, not my will, but yours be done. Right? Um, which flows into the final paragraph of chapter 4 when it's talking about God's will versus our will. I would love to talk about that 
um, tonight. I have lots of, I had lots of like learning that happened there. And I'm going to wait and talk about it next week, partly because I don't have enough time, but also partly because I actually think that this is one place where the end of chapter four should have been included with chapter five. And I think you'll see that as you ch see, as you start chapter five, like James starts those two chapters, the that those two paragraphs the exact same way and I think they fit together maybe they don't fit together maybe one feeds into the next and they progress so we'll you've already studied it we'll talk about it next week in context um, with the other chapter also okay so interestingly what James says finally is that if you do humble yourself before the Lord what will he do exalt you lift you up yeah you know, we started before we were talking about that difficult verse and this jealousy of God and how a lot of people stumble over this. Um, and lots of people will say that, that it feels a bit like God is narcissistic because he's out for his glory. He's out for his name first, right? He wants his name glorified above others and he wants you to love him most. No other gods except for him. And so sometimes people say, well, that's like, that's a narcissist, like. And I think this verse here, um, to me, it just um, sort of shows that, I, I don't know, some truth against that line of thinking, maybe, just that when you humble yourself before the Lord, he, he does, what he wants to do is to lift you up. And we, we also talked about like this in context of when we said, like, God knows what you need for flourishing, and he longs to give it to you. He longs to give you his presence. It fills everything you need. Um, and so I, I'm just going to share, this is sort of, I don't know why this, I always share weird, embarrassing things about myself with you or often, but this feels a little bit vulnerable to me, but I wanted to share with you, I, I have this, I don't know what to call it, a, like a prayer picture. I, um, so for a long time, I've had this verse in my mind and I've looked it up and it's actually repeated many times throughout, not necessarily in these words, but this idea that if you humble yourself before God, he will lift you up. And that those who humble themselves before the Lord, he lifts them up. And I think about that all the time. Um, and uh, something that I just do to try to um, concentrate, I guess, when I'm praying is I, I have some verses that I always start with, and one is from Psalm 145, and it just says, like, I start my day when I sit down, I say, let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love, for I put my trust in you. Show me the way to go, for to you I entrust my life. And it's just like me coming to say, like, okay, this, it's morning, what I need desperately is your love, and then, like, show me... Show me what to do. I, I do want to trust you. And then I've been trying to spend time in silence, which is really hard for me because my brain uh, wants to think about a million things or like I think about, I'm going to, oh, I'm going to look that up in the Greek. I just thought of something for Bible study. I do this often. So I've been, um, for like the last couple of years, I envision as I'm just in silence, I just think about how big God is. And I start with, yeah, yeah, like our Father in heaven. And so I just think about God being massive. And I picture myself standing there. And actually, what I know I need to do is kneel. So I picture myself getting down on my knees before God. And always, like, I don't, like, I'm not saying I see God or anything. But I, I can sense that, that God is quite small. And then I just try to, like, tell myself everything that, 
like and think through and rehearse everything that is true about God, his holiness, how he created everything, like his great love, how he is so other than us and he and he has is without sin and all and as I do this, I just can sense that like I almost can't it's just like only his like I can't even see the fullness of his toe. Like he I just I just sense that he is so towering above me. He is so massive and I'm on my face and I just like think I'm humbling myself before this great God. And this is really this you might think I'm strange and that's okay. But um, I what happens next is always this sense that God leans down and takes me by the hand and lifts me up and then I just feel the embrace and the love Jesus and it's every time like in my I always try to picture and sometimes like I make my body but also inside my head I just like and I don't know if it's worship just I get right down before the Lord like what does it mean to humble myself and every single time I just feel like God takes me by the hand and he embraces with like grace and love and it's been and then from there on I'm just like okay I have some things I want to talk to you about you know and um so just from there my my prayer goes but i i think that drawing near to god for me what what i what i've seen and what i think is true for all of us that it can change our desires and that as we commune with god he can change our hearts you know romans 5 has this beautiful verse that says that like that god has poured out into our hearts by the holy spirit love of God and that love of God can mean love for God or can mean God's love and I always think like can you imagine like drawing near to God and him pouring out the Holy Spirit on me fills me with a better love for him like the Holy Spirit actually helps me to love God he gives what he demands it is it's amazing it's beautiful and it's encouraging to us um, okay a couple things just from chapter 5 Chapter 5 is a bit of a, um, just a a cacophony (laughs) of a whole bunch of things, a little bit like chapter 1 was. I told you that that was going to happen. Um, But I hope that you can carry, like we just came out of this, we see this beauty of God's grace and the gospel truth, and I hope that you can carry that into chapter 5 and that you see truth, beauty, and goodness too in light of that. Um, we've been talking about chapter four here, and I've told you over the weeks that James is always showing us what does a mature faith look like. And so in chapter four, this shift that we see, I think, is from the temporal to the eternal. So instead of these earthly cravings, we start to have this spiritual appetite for the grace and the presence of God. Okay, And then we see that that is daily bread. Um, and more fulfilling than our earthly cravings and passions and desires. But in chapter 5, we're going to see that mature faith looks like this shift from seeing yourself as the whole thing to a part of a whole. Okay? It's different from seeing, we, said we, sh- we talked about the shift from um, self to others. This is a little different. This is seeing like, you know, you are the whole to seeing yourself as part of a whole. And James is going to be talking about the body of Christ. It's really important to him, the community of Christians, okay, the community of believers, the church, uh, the fellowship of the brothers and sisters is very important to James, and he thinks it ought to be very important to us. 
Um, so as chapter five begins, it links close, I already said this, to the end of chapter four, so you can have a look at this. Some people think he's talking to some rich unbelievers who were treating um, like unjustly or oppressively some poor Christian day laborers. So when he has this harsh language, he's, that's who he's talking about. Some people, um, some Romans who have taken advantage of the poor Christians in that area. Um, so through that, he's going to come back to his topic from right away in chapter one of endurance. So that comes right back to, there's a weird verse that comes out of nowhere about oaths. It feels like it does not fit. You've probably read that if you've been reading every week, you're like, what is that about? Um, and when we think about swearing oaths, just always remember it, that's like, that's using your mouth and an oath is like a covenant promise. That's what they're talking about in the Bible. We talk about oaths like, like a swear word sometimes. We think about that. But, but when he has oaths in mind, he's talking about entering into covenant relationship with someone. So here's a little bit of help. Some, some um, commentators think that the poor Christians were perhaps tempted to uh, use oaths to fend off their creditors like to promise something or to make a covenant for like here you can like take my daughter as your wife or something to pay my debt and he was like warning them against like don't do that instead trust God to um to sustain you during your oppression okay or to like to get other necessities like I'll give you this and like they'll give us food or something and James wanted them to actually have full trust in the Lord and know that the Lord would provide for them and then the final paragraph of James is he's going to call out what wise speech once and for all. Um, and then I just wanted to warn you, there's another weird verse in there about Elijah praying. And if you just sort of take a run at it, you kind of might think, yeah, like, man, I suck at prayer because like, <laughs> I can't, I can't get those sorts of results. Like that's sort of how we feel. Like he's telling us, well, you should just pray like Elijah who prayed one time that there wouldn't be rain and then there wasn't rain and then he prayed again that there would be rain and then it rained and like, come on, what's wrong with you? That, it feels a little bit like that. Um, we need the whole con context of the illusion. So I'm sending you back in your homework. Like really do the work if you want to know. Like read the whole story. See what's happening in First Kings there with Elijah. Um, that will help. That will help you to understand that James is not saying there's something wrong with the way you pray. He's saying a, something different about prayer um, in general. And we didn't get too much time to talk about this, but it'll really help you in that when you're thinking about Elijah, if you think about these prayer problems that James diagnosed, right? He said, we don't ask and then we ask wrongly, okay? So think about this idea of like selfish prayer versus like prayer that is aligned with the heart of God when, it, when you're reading that and when you're talking, uh, reading about Elijah, okay? And then we will talk about it next time, okay? That's all I have for you. So with that, we will dismiss you um, to begin James 5. Let me just, uh, let's just pray for just a couple minutes together and then I will dismiss you because I know here in person some people are going to pray at tables. So, Lord Jesus, we, um, we confess that we have a lot of um, 
yeah, cravings and selfish desires that we bring to the body of Christ, that we bring to our relationships, our families, and uh, our community groups, our church, our places of work. Um, you say this is true, and we want to align ourselves with, uh, with your reality, so we humble ourselves and say that, yes, we do. And even now, as your Holy Spirit sort of prompts us to, I don't know, just have our eyes opened and our ears opened to what those cravings are, God, we want to listen. We thank you that your Holy Spirit is wisdom and power, the power to break this sin cycle and instead to cause us to draw near to you um, and experience what it is that we need in this life, which is your presence. Uh, I pray that you would do that in us and as we grow closer to you, as we learn to align ourselves with you through the way we talk, through the way we pray, through the way we view other people, through the way we just view all the circumstances of life, that you would make us into people of peace who are truly humble, who see you as a good God and who um, consciously and someday less so think less of ourselves and just more of you. Would you, uh, would you do that? We ask for that wisdom to work in us. In your name we pray, amen. Thanks for studying along. For more resources and to connect with us, you can find us at crossridge.church forward slash wstudy. We'll see you soon.